Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thankful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And uh, like uh, Becky was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. Just build relationships and explore what it means to keep following and growing up in our faith. So excited as well. Continue our series of the Gospel of John together. But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, then it's really important that you understand that like the other three Gospels, uh, John's Gospel tells us the story of Jesus' life and ministry, but in a really unique way. He ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new stories from Jesus' life and ministry. And what we've seen throughout our time together is that the reason for that has a lot to do with the reality that John's primary purpose isn't to introduce Jesus to people for the first time necessarily, but... Instead, it's actually to awaken this kind of true heart-level faith in Jesus amongst the people who just have this mere head-level superficial knowledge about him. And see, John's hope and his prayer is that in showing Jesus to people through a new lens and helping them see him in a new way, that people's kind of lifeless head-level knowledge about Jesus, that it might finally become like a real heart-level, life-transforming faith in him that, that produces life in them now and for eternity. And so we saw in the first half of the book how the part of the way John goes about doing that is by highlighting Jesus' public ministry. He recounts for us how Jesus traveled around preaching and teaching and performing miracles. And all those things were meant by John to help show us that Jesus was Messiah, that he's God himself come to rescue and redeem people from sin and come to call people to faith in him and the kind of faith that transforms their lives. And we've seen how, though, in the second half of the book, John zooms in on the last couple of days of Jesus' life and ministry as he withdraws from the crowd and as he invests his remaining little time with his disciples. And, and what he's trying to do in these last few chapters is highlight how Jesus spent that time trying to prepare the disciples for the kind of life and ministry that he was calling them to lead as his representatives, as his people in the world after his death. And it's a section of John's gospel in chapters kind of 13 to 17 or so. It's often referred to as kind of the upper room or the farewell discourse that Jesus gives. And we've been in it for a few weeks. We have a couple weeks left as we continue that section. But we saw last week in the first half of chapter 15 how at the heart of the life that Jesus is calling his followers to live it requires that we remain connected to him, right? That we have this active, ongoing relationship with him because that he's the true vine, right? He is and he does for us what we cannot be and do for ourselves, right? Without him, we have no power to produce any spiritual fruit in our own lives or in anyone else's life. And But the reality, the converse is true, right? When we may remain connected with him through loving obedience to his words, what happens is we're inevitably transformed by him in this kind of inward and then outward way. And our actions and attitudes and perspectives, they increasingly reflect him. And that's the very definition of the fruitfulness that he's longing that his followers would be characterized by, right? But we're going to see this morning in the second half of chapter 15 is that, is that while there's this connectedness to Jesus is absolutely necessary if we're going to be fruitful disciples of his, it will also, this, that connectedness to him is also going to be costly. 
You see, following Jesus doesn't come with the promise of health or wealth or social prosperity in this life. In fact, and we're going to see this morning, it actually comes with the opposite promise, right? A promise of rejection, persecution, even suffering. And what I want to show you this morning as we take a look at Jesus' words in the second half of John 15 is, is that unless as Christians we, are, we expect opposition from the world, Right? Unless we expect opposition from the world, we're going to be tempted to turn away from following Jesus when it does invariably come. But if we'll understand the inevitability of opposition that we'll face and the reasons for it, we'll actually be able to be prepared to, to confidently bear witness for Christ instead of just be whining, just whiners who walk away from him. And so I can't wait to show it to you. In fact, and our passage this morning is such an important one for us as followers of Jesus, especially here in the Western world that we might wrestle with the realities that are here. And so uh, I can't wait to show it to you this morning. Such an important passage for us. So let's pray and we'll, we'll dive in together. Jesus, thanks so much uh, for you and for our time together in your word. And God, we pray this morning as we come to a passage that, if I'm honest, is not really that exciting, but often just like brings up a sense of Man, just like, I want to push back against it. My, my proclivity is to, God, we pray that you'd be gracious to keep meeting us in your word, that you'd be gracious to help, help keep seeing the call to lo- not just love you, but to live for you no matter what the costs are. We pray that you'd be empowering us with the truth of the gospel and by your spirit this morning uh, to receive your word and also to respond rightly to it as we seek to live as your people in the world. And so um, I can't make any of that happen, but you can. And so God, I pray that for our good as your people and for your glory as we live for you, you might, you might bring those things to fruition in our lives this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 15, kind of the second half uh, into the, just the first couple of verses of chapter 16. It reads this way. Again, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples here. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. And that's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. And they will treat you this way because of my name, for they don't know the one who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. And if I had not done, um, done among them the works that no one else did, then they wouldn't be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and the Father. But this is to fulfill what's written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify about me, for you've been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. And they'll do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this, so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. 
All right, so like we were saying, Jesus spends the first half of chapter 15 recounting, or John rather, spends the first half of chapter 15 recounting Jesus' teaching about the necessity of being connected to him in this active, ongoing way. Right? If we, if we want to be fruitful disciples, we've got to remain connected with Jesus. But in the second half of the chapter, we see he turns the, his focus on the cost of being connected to Jesus. And, and what Jesus is repeating, the, warning the disciples about in our passage, right, is the, inevitable, the inevitability of opposition that's going to come from following him, right? Jesus makes clear if you're connected with him, right, if you are characterized by a loving obedience to him and to his word that's bearing fruit in your life, then you will face opposition from the world. Right, verse 18, if the world hates you, the inference is, which it will. Then keep in mind, it hated me first. If they persecuted me, which they did, keep in mind, they will persecute you also. Verse, chapter, verse 2 of chapter 16, they'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time's coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. Right, it's not just here in Jesus' words, right? Throughout the New Testament, right, we see the, the inevitability of opposition to Christ and to following him and messages reiterated, right? Second Timothy chapter three, Paul writes, Everyone, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In first John chapter three, John himself puts it in his own words this way. He says, Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if the world hates you, right? It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be hurt when we face opposition for following Jesus, right? But we should never be surprised as Christians when you face opposition, right? In that way, being a Christian is a lot like being a Vikings fan, right? It is absolutely okay to be disappointed, but you should not be surprised, right? Like, like this is, I love you Vikings fans, but like, Really, like it's preparing you to love Jesus, right? So it's like, it's actually, in a guess, in a way, it's actually good for you, right? But, but just to be clear, right? Not, not all opposition to following and proclaiming Jesus looks the same, and it doesn't cost the same, right? There is vastly more opposition and vastly greater cost to being a witness for Christ in Afghanistan than there is here in the U.S., right? Especially here in Dubuque, right? And that may not always be the case, but it certainly is the case now, right? And anybody who lives in Dubuque here who tells you they're being persecuted for following Jesus is being wildly overdramatic, right? Like, it's, it's, that's, that's just, that's just an, a dramatic overstatement, right? But despite the spectrum of opposition to living for Christ, despite what that incurs for Christians across the world and throughout history, you have to understand that there will always be some opposition. There's always going to be some cost to following Jesus and bearing witness about him, right? And it may not look like risking your life, right? And it may not look like being excommunicated from your whole social or family or religious community, like being put out of the synagogues would have been for the Jews in that time. But it very well might be, mean being hated, right? That word that's translated hate there, it literally means to, to detest or disdain or to show contempt for someone or something, right? The reality is that here, even in our own country, right, increasingly those who hold to the Bible's teaching on all kinds of issues, right, are, are not just seen as wrong, right, but are seen as evil, right, bigots, oppressors of personal freedom. And so in a very real way, Christians are being pushed to the margins of society, even in our own country, right, being seen as pariahs, right, that are negative influences, 
Right? And it's not just by the outside world, but by religious people as well, which again, that shouldn't surprise us. Right? Jesus himself in our passage this morning, he highlights how the opposition that his disciples are going to face, right? it's not just going to come from irreligious, from the world, it's going to come from those inside the faith community as well. Right? The people John was writing to in the late first century, they would have certainly had firsthand knowledge of that reality. Right, whether it's being persecuted, even killed by the Roman emperors who saw Christianity as a threat to their own worship and their own kingdoms and their own authority, or by the Jews who increasingly opposed Christians and indeed threw them out of their synagogues, excommunicated, alienated them from social, religious, family life in that day. Right? We see that especially in, in, in the book of Acts with Saul, right, who was literally hunting down and murdering and arresting Christians. The same kinds of things are happening all around the world today, even though maybe they're not happening here. And so from all sides, those who are seeking to faithfully follow Jesus and proclaim the good news of the gospel with their words and with their lives, they're inevitably going to face opposition. And so the question that you have to ask is why, right? Why is the message of the gospel so strongly opposed by the religious and irreligious alike? Why is there such strong opposition that brings us to the second thing we need to see in our passage this morning, right? Jesus highlights the, not just the reality of opposition that we're going to face, he highlights the reasons for it. And he gives us at least three reasons behind the inevitable opposition that Christians will face. But the first thing that you need to see, and I would just say this kind of like undergirds all of them, right? Is that Jesus wants to make sure the disciples understand that, that the underlying issue, like the, like the big picture reason behind all of the things that are going, all the opposition they're going to face, right? They're not personal th- reasons, they're, they're actually theological reasons. All right, verse 18, verse 20, he tells the disciples that they'll face hatred and persecution just as he did. And in verse 21, he tells them, they'll treat you this way because of my name. Right, because of me, right? He's telling them that right, the opposition you're going to face, it's not actually about you. It's really about me. Right? It's like a, it's a parent, right? When you tell your kids when they're facing like a bully at school or someone who's being mean at school, right? It's just a reminder that you tell your kids, like, hey, like, I just, it's not about you. Right? There's something else going on that you don't understand that you can't see. There's something bigger happening there that they're really railing against. And that doesn't excuse that behavior, it doesn't minimize it, but it does help us to understand that, right? And Jesus wants his disciples to know, right? He says, the world hated him and therefore it will hate us by association. Verse 20, the servant is not greater than his master. Jesus is saying, the way of the king is the way of the kingdom. It always is. The way of the king is always the way of the kingdom. And so the And the way of the king is that he was hated and persecuted. And the reason why religious and irreligious people both hated and persecuted Jesus, we see in the passage, is really twofold, right? Number one, we see in like we see in verses 22 and 24, right? With his words and with his works, right? Jesus claimed that he was God. And he claimed, therefore, that he held an unrivaled and absolute authority and superiority, right? In his message uh, on this passage, Tim Keller, he highlighted how in Jewish synagogues, what would happen is a man would stand up and would speak or give testimony about something. And then the elders of the group, after he sat down, they would kind of meet together. And, and if they agreed that what he had to say was right or correct, they would, they would say, amen, amen, and they, as like this affirmation. And yet what Jesus does, you see this over and over throughout Jesus' teaching. Jesus begins often his teaching by saying, very truly I tell you. Right? In the Greek, it's literally amen, amen. 
See, what Jesus is doing is saying, I, I take away your right to be the judge of my words. Right? Before, you don't get to be the one who decides if whether I say, what I say is true or not. I'm the authority. I'm the king. I'm the one who created and made all of it. I'm not just a representative, I'm God himself. Right? And therefore we have to listen to him and we have to submit to him and we do not have the right to question him. You see, we live in a world that's really committed to the idea that there is no such thing as objective truth. Right? That truth is whatever you think it is, whatever feels right is right. right? Your truth is the truth. And so as Christians, when we come along and when we say, you know, no, you don't get to decide what's true, and neither do I. We don't have the right to decide what is true and right and good. God does. Right? That is invariably going to put you in opposition with people. But it's not just that Jesus' words and his works claimed that he was the objective authority and source of truth. So we see that with his words and with his work, Jesus exposed people's deeds as evil. And he exposed sin as sin, and he called it as such. And he did that for the righteous, and he did that for the religious and the irreligious alike. John chapter 3, if you remember earlier, John writes it this way. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Here's the reality. Nobody likes being told they're wrong, and certainly nobody likes being told that their deeds are evil. Right? There's zero people who are like, oh yeah, that sounds great, I love that. Right? That's really affirming for me personally. Right? That's not how that goes. Right? But as one commentary put it, right, the gospel is always disruptive before it's redemptive. The gospel is always disruptive before it's redemptive, right? For the religious, right, the message of the gospel, right, disrupts, right, because it's a message of grace that's an affront to the self-salvation of religious people, right? Religion's all about the things that we try to do to get to God, right? All the things we try to earn or merit or maintain our status and standing before him. But the gospel is about all the things that God has done to get to us in spite of ourselves. It's the proclamation that on our very best day, what we have to offer God is just the equivalent of worthless, filthy rags, right? That our self-righteousness and our self-salvation are not just insufficient, they're wrong and they're rebellious and they're wicked. And yet in love, in the midst of all of our selfless, selfish rebellion, God comes to be and to do for us what, we, what you and I cannot be and do for ourselves, right? And to save us from ourselves. And so our hope is rooted then entirely in his grace, in his work, not in ourselves and nothing we bring to the table. And so religious people, they hate hearing that because what it means is that they're not in control. Right? And they can't save themselves by just wanting it enough, or by working hard enough. And what it means is that they have to admit their need and their inability to do anything about it, right? And that requires that they admit their lack of superiority over others. And so their hearts are opposed to Jesus and his message of the gospel of grace. And so the gospel is disruptive before it's redemptive for religious people. But the gospel is disrupted before it's redempted for the irreligious too. So the very notion of a need for grace and salvation 
for the world is just a stumbling block in its first place, right? The idea that there is something so bad about us that it requires that God would even die on our behalf, right? That doesn't align with a world that tells you, right, that you should love yourself unconditionally and that you should express yourself in, like without reservation no matter what you find. See, the message of the gospel runs counter to the world for all of us. And so the world hates Christ and the gospel of grace that's lived out and proclaimed. But before we talk about the other reasons why Jesus outlines, right, it's important just to clarify, right? Sometimes the oppositions we face as Christians is not because we're Christians, but just because we're idiots, right? Because of our own sin and our own folly, right? In other words, you got to be careful that when we're that we're not trying to like use Jesus as a shield to like protect us from the consequences of our own actions, right? In, Matthew, in, Sir, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus right, he says, Blessed are you when your people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of righteousness. Right? He doesn't say, Blessed are you when people persecute you because you're obnoxious. Right? That, that's not in there. That's not, that's not how that works. Right? Too many Christians, I think, wear like, this badge, like the world's hatred as like a badge of honor that just like, excuses their, like, well, I can be a jerk because other people are. And I'm just going to like wear the world's hatred as this like reasoning why it's totally fine if I'm unloving and uncaring and arrogant and snarky and just a jerk. And the reality is like there's no beatitude for that. Right? Jesus isn't like, yeah, yeah. That's not how it works. I remember in college a couple times a year there there'd be these street preachers that would come and they'd stand outside the student center with these huge signs, right? Have this giant list of all like the people that God hated, right? And all the people that were going to hell, right? And they would just shout at people as they walked by, right? And, and, I rem and sometimes students would shout back at them. And I remember one time one of those preachers shouting at people like, you just hate me because you hate God, right? And I, I just thought like, I don't think that's why. Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. Like, I think like, I think you're a jerk, right? right? Here's the truth. Hate is contagious. Hate is contagious. So is love, right? But hate is contagious. And when you don't know God, you will always hate the wrong things. Right? And we, we reflect the hate that we receive. We reflect it back. That's how people always work. See, that leads us to the, to the second reason that Jesus gives us for the opposition that will face as his disciples, right? And it's just ignorance. Right, verse 21, Jesus tells the disciples, they'll treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Verse 25, this is to fulfill what's written in their law. They hated me without reason. Again, in, in verse 3 of chapter 16, they'll do such things because they have not known the Father or me. See, Jesus telling the disciples, one of the reasons why people opposed him is because they didn't really know him, and they didn't really know the Father, right? even if they thought they did. right? And until they do, people are going to hate the wrong things. Right? People that are far from God are going to hate the wrong things. It's how it works. Right? And it's important that you understand that, right? Because sometimes we can think that if we just kind of did ministry the right way, or if we just always had the exact right tone and posture, right? That, that in the end, people, like, the world would just like, really appreciate what we had to say always. And the truth is, is that there will always be people who stand in opposition to God and his kingdom, no matter how graciously we present it. And that's not an excuse to be a jerk for Jesus, like I said earlier. 
But it is to say that opposition to God's kingdom building work doesn't inherently mean that you're doing it wrong. See, people who are far from him, people who do not know him, they will always hate the wrong things. Because they, the, they don't know the truth yet. And so hatred for Christ and ignorance towards him are the first two reasons Jesus gives us for opposition to his, his disciples are going to face. But there's, there's one more really important one that Jesus gives in the passage. Right, verse 19, he says it this way, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Right, Jesus is telling the disciples, listen guys, when I chose to reveal myself to you, when I chose to awaken in you a true saving faith in your hearts, what happens is you got a whole new identity, you got a whole new passport. Right? You don't, just be, you don't belong to the kingdoms of this world anymore, you belong to my kingdom, you have a new citizenship and it's in heaven. You didn't just get new travel docs. Jesus says you got a whole new heart and therefore new desires and new passions and new priorities, all of which run counter to the world. And so you're not going to fit in here anymore. Here's the reality, church. If you don't understand the fundamental difference between yourself and the world, you are going to be continually shocked and surprised and confused, and in the end you will be defeated and you will be led astray. You don't belong to the world anymore. You have an inherently new identity and new citizenship. It's altogether different, right? When you and I as branches, when we're grafted into Jesus, who is the true vine, what happens is in order to graft us into his vine, he's got to cut the roots to all the other stuff. And he cuts the roots to our families and our race and our politics and our social class. All these things that used to define us, that used to give us meaning and purpose and identity, they no longer do anymore, right? Those things don't own you anymore. They don't drive you anymore. But for the world, they still do. And so they can't understand you, right? They can't, they don't make, you don't make sense. And so you're suspect, right? Because the things that control them don't control you anymore. And they can't be used to control you anymore, Right? And so you may be pushed to the margins of your social circles because you just don't fit. Or you may be passed over for promotions because you're, for your company or your career because those aspirations are no longer your functional God that rule you anymore. And a million other things. And when that happens, I want to encourage you, don't give up. And don't be surprised and don't give in. Instead, press into Jesus. Keep looking for your identity and your acceptance and your worth in what he has to say about you. And what he's proven on the cross, his, his value and worth of you are. And keep testifying to his transforming work in your life, right? And that leads us to the last thing that you have to see in the passage this morning, right? Jesus doesn't just tell us about the inevitability of opposition. He doesn't just tell us about the reasons for it. He tells us how to respond when it does come. And there's two things. One is, a, one is a positive way we should respond and one's as negative, right? Things that we shouldn't do and things that we should. The first thing we got to see is that what we shouldn't do, right? Chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all this so that you won't fall away. There is a whole lot of reasons why people choose to kind of press the eject button on following Jesus or why people who are investigating following him end up saying, you know what, this is not for me. 
But one of the primary drivers of that kind of spiritual deconstruction, right? One of the primary drivers, not the only one, but one of the primary ones is opposition from the world, right? The world just started hating them, and it's a lot easier to just agree with the world. See, the way of Jesus stands at odds with the way of the world, whether that's his view for the purpose of gender or sexuality or marriage, whether it's his command to actually love your enemy, not just your friends, whether it's, whether it's his call to prioritize building his kingdom and not building your own kingdom. And when we seek to obey Jesus ourselves, and especially when we invite and call others to do the same, we are pushing the exact opposite direction of the world, and so there will be opposition. And if you believe the lie that following Jesus either does or should come with a promise of like health and wealth and social prosperity in this life, right, instead of the actual promise of opposition and rejection and suffering, then when it invariably does come, you won't have any foundation to stand on. Right? Because, and you'll just walk away because Jesus was never your true God. He was just the means to getting something else. Whatever that other thing was, was the real thing that you worshipped. If we love not being hated, we will avoid being hated at all costs. But if we love Jesus as he has loved us, what's going to happen is we're going to be empowered to join his spirit in confidently testifying to him. And so instead of falling away, we press in to testifying about Jesus. Verse 26 and 27, when the advocate comes, whom I'll send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify. That word in the Greek there that's translated testify is the, it's the Greek word marturio. That's where we get our English word martyr from, right? Some of you are like, wow, that really sounds, it's like, is that where it comes? Yep, it is, right? In the Greek, it didn't necessarily mean to die for something, right? but instead it meant to give an authoritative testimony or witness to what you have seen in spite of the costs. See, to testify to something is to, is to proclaim the truth in spite of the costs. See, the calling of Christ's followers is to stick close to him and to be transformed by him. And when that transformation inevitably leads us into conflict with the world, we're to testify and proclaim with our words and with our lives the good news of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ made known to us, even if it costs us something. And you've got to ask the question, right? How do you do that? How do, you, how do you choose? How do you choose to bear witness to Jesus even when it's costly? How do you do that? Well, the only way is you've got to go back to the first part of chapter 15. Right? He says, verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. See, the only way that you say yes to Jesus' calling, to not just stick close to him, but to testify to him even when it costs. The only way that happens is when you see his love for you. It's the only way. When his life given for you in love for you is beautiful and captivating and compelling. When you see all it costs him, that's the only way that you can choose to give, to love him whatever it costs. 
You see, and it's God's great love for us that we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. By reminding ourselves with the bread and with the juice that which are pictures of his body and blood which were broken and shed, which were spent. At the cost of our salvation was his body and blood broken and shed for us. And so we remember communion together, not because remembering it like changes our status or standing with God, but because the truth is we forget the cost that he paid to get to us. And if we're going to be a people who choose to follow him when it's costly, we can never forget the cost he paid for us. And so we keep coming back to that reality. We keep coming back to the cost of his love for us so that we might be empowered to live for him. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, to be the one who paid the price for your redemption, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it as this glorious reminder of all it costs him to give you salvation, to make you right with him, to bring you forgiveness. But if you're here this morning, you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what that means, or you're still figuring out if following him is worth the cost. And I want to encourage you this morning, hold off on taking communion. God's not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that says he's worth giving anything for. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and we would love to help you get to know him. But wherever you are at this morning, I want to encourage you, talk with God. As we celebrate communion, as we sing, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. For those of you who are here and you're on the fence about following Jesus, and you hear this word this morning, Jesus' warning of opposition and his warning of persecution, and the reality is you are tempted to walk out those doors after the sermon and not look back. Because the cost seems altogether not worth it. Before you do that, I just want to encourage you to consider the cost of that choice. Because yes, there absolutely is a cost to following Jesus, but there absolutely is one to rejecting him as well. When you can choose to love God and be opposed by the world in this life, or you can choose to love the world in this life and spend eternity in opposition to him. Let me just tell you right now, it's not a good trade. See, the cost of following Jesus is worth the opposition of the world. The cost of opposition to God is not. Ask him to help you to count the costs accurately. And ask him to help you to choose to love him instead of the world, even though it will be costly. Others of you, you're here and maybe you're facing some opposition right now. Maybe you're getting passed over for a promotion at work because you're not prioritizing your company ahead of your faith or because you're not willing to bend the rules to get success like others are. Or maybe your extended families just think you're crazy. Maybe you joined a cult, right? Because your faith in Jesus is not just this small compartmentalized section of your life, but it's something that's actually like transforming like the way you see everything in the world. Or maybe your friend group You're feeling like the odd one out because you can't affirm or participate in the attitudes and the actions that maybe you once could. Or maybe you're just seeing the ways that Christians around the world are facing all kinds of opposition for following and for testifying to Jesus. 
and you look at all that and what John and what Jesus want you to know is that the opposition to Jesus and his kingdom in the world is not evidence of its retreat. In fact, it's the opposite. See, opposition to Jesus and his kingdom means that his kingdom is on the advance. Right? Opposition is not always a setback or a step back in God's plan. In fact, it is often central to God's plan for his purposes for his people. My daughter Emma and I, we've been reading through the, uh, to, through the book of Acts in our quiet times in the morning. She calls it our Bible date, right? But we've been reading through that together, and just this last week we got to chapter 7. Stephen, who loves the Lord and who is empowered by his spirit to testify about Jesus, is killed. And he's stoned to death. And yet God uses that very action and the great persecution that follows for the church as a whole to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And just as Jesus promised, it goes from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. And so persecution and opposition is not always a, it's not a step back in God's kingdom. He uses it all the time. Remember I had a friend in college who I'd work out with, and he loved working out. And I, I didn't, right? And I don't, right? Maybe you can tell, right? Um, and I'd look at this list of stuff that he would plan for us to do, right? And I'd just be like, this is going to hurt. And he would always respond, only if we do it right. You see, that's how it is with following Jesus, right? Yeah, it might hurt a little. Only if we do it right, though. See, the famous missionary and theologian, Leslie Newbegin, he put it this way, the hatred and rejection of the world is not to be a cause of alarm or distress. On the contrary, it's to be a ground of confidence because it is the confirmation of the fact that the disciples really do belong to Jesus and because it will be the occasion for the mighty witness of the spirit of truth. Right, he's, what he's saying is that opposition to following Jesus, it shouldn't cause you doubt. It should actually inspire confidence. I'd ask God to help you grow in your confidence in his faithfulness, even in the midst of spiritual adversity, and ask him that he might give you a glimpse of what he is using it for, for good. In your own life, in the world, ask him to give you eyes to see how his kingdom is advancing, even in the midst of opposition. Ask him to help you build your faith in that way. And just secondly, I'll just say this. If you're facing that, I just want to encourage you, don't be afraid. So many Christians in the world today are just like afraid that like, just the government's going to ruin everything and we'll always be oppressed and something's going to happen. Just like, spoiler alert, like God's in control. He always has been. He always will be. That's not changing. Like you don't, you don't need to be characterized by fear. Right? When Christians, when we just have this attitude of fearfulness, what we're proclaiming is that like God cannot be trusted. He's not actually in control. And like we just like don't actually have anything to stand on. I just want to encourage you. Fear is contagious. So as a Christian, I want to encourage you with your family, with your friends, with your kids. Is the way that you talk about the world, does that inspire confidence in God or fear of the world? How does the way that you talk about the world around you and what following Jesus might cost, does that inspire confidence in God or fear of the world? 
Ask carefully, consider carefully what your words say in those ways. But lastly, I'm totally going to go over on time, but we like we got to get to this point, okay? Some of you are here and your faith has never resulted in the least bit of opposition from the world at all. And while that seems really nice and really convenient, that should be a red flag for you. All right, we should never seek out persecution or suffering. That is not only insane, it's unbiblical, right? Like, uh, we're not, I'm not advocating like, hey, go pursue some persecution. It's going to be great, right? Like, that's not what I'm saying. But if we never experience any kind of opposition for following Jesus, it usually means one of two things. It usually means, one, we're not actually living in obedience to his word and, and not bearing fruit. Right? The way you live, how you speak, the way you use your time or your money, the things you value or prioritize, it looks just like the world around you and not like Jesus. And you don't have anything, like there's nothing different about you. And so you have nothing to testify to. Right? So sometimes the reality is that we're just not living in obedience to him. Right? We're just going with the flow of the world. And so we're not facing any opposition for that way. Or secondly, the other reality is that we're not testifying about him to anyone who doesn't know him already. Right, sometimes we hide or conceal our faith in public spaces, right? Because we want the approval of our peers or our coworkers or, or our employers, or, or maybe we just feel unequipped to answer people's questions or objections. And so you just like avoid talking about your faith in any meaningful ways in, like, in public spaces. Right? Or, or sometimes what happens is we just try to separate ourselves from the world as much as possible, right? All of us long for safe spaces. That's not wrong, right? It's not, it's not wrong to, to want to have places and spaces in our lives where we feel we can live, be who we are in unthreatened ways, right? And the church should be that for the Christian community, right? It should be that kind of a place for us. But it's easy just to want to like live in that safety bubble, right? to live in that spot all the time, Right, I, just, I just need you to hear, that's not the calling of God's people. Over and over repeatedly, the call is that we might be salt and light in the world, that we might be ambassadors of the good news of the gospel, and you cannot do that when you don't have any contact with the world. You can't do it. And so just to be clear, I'm not telling you what job you should take or not take, or whether or not to send your kids to public school or private school or whatever. Like, I'm, not, I'm not trying to tell you that. But what I am saying is that whatever choices you do make, following Jesus will always mean that we are intentional about putting ourselves and our families in real relationships with people that don't know Jesus yet so you can have chances to testify about him. And maybe for some of you, the next step is like you just need to start putting yourself into the world a little. You've secluded yourself or you've hidden your faith in all those public spaces of your life. God might just be calling you. Right? Not to be obnoxious, right? I'm not saying that. But maybe just to talk about like what you're reading in your Bible and how that's challenging you. Maybe how Jesus is at work, the things he's convicting you about in your own life. Maybe just talk about the hope that he's given you. See, there's life in following him. Even if there's costs. And for all of us, the invitation is that we might see Jesus as supremely valuable. Right? That we might give ourselves wholeheartedly to living for and to testifying to him because he gave himself wholeheartedly to us. And so instead of being surprised when opposition comes, we'll be ready to testify 
to the good news of the gospel of grace, no matter what it costs. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and are so grateful for your words of warning to us. God, we're just, I'm so grateful that you just like, you don't like try to pull the bait and switch thing with the disciples. Right? You don't just tell them that following you is going to be all just like roses and unicorns and puppies. And you tell them that there's going to be a cost to it. There is a life, but there's a cost to it. And so Jesus, we ask this morning that you might help us to count the cost of following you. And that we might see you as supremely valuable. That we might see you as worth living for. And even if you might call it to us worth dying for. And we're grateful, Jesus, that by your grace you have set us down in a time and a place in history where the opposition to you is not that strong. And we pray that, Jesus, instead of just like believing the lie, that like following you always comes with like health and wealth and prosperity and social cues, like we just pray that we'd see that like the invitation to follow you, no matter what it costs, is for us as well. And so help us to put ourselves in places where we can testify to you, even if it costs so that you might be glorified in us, we pray. Amen.